You guys know I'm a big fan of what they're doing at 56 Brave. Well, we have a pick up the six discount code to save you 10% off. First, let me tell you more about our friends at 56 Brave. 56 Brave is worn by Patriots because it's made by Patriots. Think about this. 56 Brave boldly pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor by signing the Declaration of Independence. Today, it's because of those Patriots and millions more who followed that we enjoy a country with freedoms unlike any other. 56 Brave is an apparel company that was founded by former U.S. Special Operations soldiers, including my great friend Lowell Coppert. We've had him on the show a few times. Their mission is to honor the bold patriots of our past, present, and future with a unique apparel line. Their stuff is badass, some of it unlike anything I've ever seen. So go to 56brave.com, use the code the 6 just spell it out. Pick up the six is the promo code to save 10% off today. Ron Zaleski keeps his feet firmly planted on the ground. Literally. Since 1972, he's been shoeless after vowing to forego footwear as a memorial to his fallen brothers during Vietnam. His shoeless journey has taken him across the United States through his mission with the Long Walk Home Foundation. Kick them off and join us for this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Ron Zaleski joins me on Pick Up the Six Podcast. Ron, uh, thanks for joining us, man. Great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. No, it's my pleasure. Excited to, to share your story and talk about this long walk home. You know, most people, when they think about taking a stroll without shoes on, you know, maybe it's just to walk along the beach or in their backyard, you've taken it not one step, thousands of steps further than that. So just excited to get to, to hear your story and, and how that all came to be. So again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of the guys that just uh, we just hired to work with us, he asked me, well, how did you get the name for the long walk home? And I said, well, when I got out, you know, I was a mess. And uh, I went through my first divorce, was losing my children and my ex-wife and, you know, all of that. And I uh, I went into the woods because I knew that I was going to go crazy. Mm. You know? So I figured, let me go in the woods, calm myself down. And because I had heard about somebody walking the Appalachian Trail and what it did for them. So it was like America's vision quest. So I was ready for it, you know. So, you know, I went. And uh, so that's how I got the idea to do the walk originally, to walk the Appalachian Trail then across the country. But it's called the long walk home because we we're physically home. But we, you know, we we're there present in the house, but we're not home yet because we haven't made the emotional walk yet. We haven't taken responsibility yet because, you know, when we're in the military, they own you. And I was of the. Uh, that mental attitude that, you know, nothing's my fault. And, you know, they always tell me what to do. So I don't have any, I didn't take responsibility for anything or have any power because I gave it away. But when I finally made it home, and this is, oh, this is 33 years after I got out, when I took responsibility for what I'm doing in this country, because I sat on my hands for 33 years blaming my country, my politicians, everybody but myself. And when I finally realized this is my country and took responsibility for it was when I truly was home because this is my country. When I got out, I didn't look at this as my country because of the way I was treated, calling being called a baby killer, you know, being blamed for everything and how the country treated us back then. So this wasn't my country anymore. You know, the way they treated me, I was a monster and not even they didn't even want me in this country. So when I after 33 years of being angry and taking responsibility, then that's when I started to do something to correct what I felt was was a mistake. Mm. And, um, you know, so that's how it got the name, The Long Walk Home. Man, Ron Zaleski gets on the air with us and just starts bringing the uh the heat out the gate uh i I am just i'm glad our paths have crossed to talk about this we're going to dig more into that right to what that responsibility is like and ultimately where it's led you let's go back to 1970 19 year old joins the united states marine corps uh and you were telling me before we hit record sort of how that came to be and it's one of those 
one of those classic tales about a buddy and you ended up uh, signing up. So how'd you end up in the Marines in, in, uh, okay, in the well, early seventies? Yeah. Well, what happened um, in 68, I was in the merchant Marines. I was 17 and in the merchant Marines. And I believed everything they told me, my world was black and white. You know, when you're a kid, you get out of school, you know, if you don't do what you say, you're a hypocrite. You know, that's why there's so much rebellion with kids. People seem to forget that, but so I go into Merchant Marines and I'm on a ship delivering military equipment to the Arabs and we had signed a peace treaty with the Jews. And I said, how can we do this? And they all laughed at me and said, it's about money. And that's when I started to like doubt, you know, everything I was taught in school and what I was told. And, you know, I don't have the intel to make, you know, any kind of have any kind of intelligent discussion with anybody about politics or war. You know, I know that because I know there are times when a war is necessary. And, and but, you know, from what I saw and where I was, it just what the hell are we doing? You know, I couldn't figure it out at that age, you know. And, you know, at that age, you know everything. You're brilliant. You know, you're a genius, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. one of those, if I, if I knew then what I knew now sort of deals, right? Yeah. And, you know, at the time, this is what people also do to themselves, myself included, is at the time you're doing the best you can with what you know. Mm. When you get older, you look, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. No, you couldn't have. You did the best you could in that moment. And a lot of moments require immediate attention. You know, you don't have, you know, 30 years to think about, oh, could I do this or that? And you don't have the life experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so I get my, I get, my number is 34 in the draft lottery. My buddy is 16. We've both been in trouble, but he got arrested and had a record for it. I didn't, you know? So uh, he says, well, let's go in the Marines. We're going anyway. And I says, I'm waiting until the FBI take me. I'm not going anywhere. He says, you know, so he kept bugging me. And I came from a very dysfunctional family, World War II. Um, my father had a choice at the age of 17 to go to prison for four years for armed robbery or go in the military. Mm. That's the guy that raised me. Okay. He's been drinking since he was 12. I started drinking at 14. So he had a leg up on me there. So, uh, you know, so I figured this is a way to get even with my parents because, you know, I got beat physically or verbally every day. And my father was a big guy. And, you know, when you were a kid, you were scared of your father. You know, you, you know maybe there might be a time you can beat him, but you don't even know it because you're still afraid of him. So uh, I figured, well, this is a great way for me to get even with him because we're real, we're Polish, you know, Polish descent. And so and we're real Catholic. And I figured, well, what a great way to get at my folks. And I said, uh, you know, I told them, oh, I'm going in the Marines. And they looked at me and, what are you going in the Marines for? You don't believe in killing. I says, well, it must be okay. The church doesn't stop it. Mm. And my mother cried. And that's when I realized that's not what I wanted. You know, you think you know what you want when you're a kid. And my father looked at me like he knew something he wasn't going to tell me. And I regretted that. I regretted that moment since that time. And then I go in the Marines. I get into a fight with my commanding officer because I had such a great attitude. And uh, I get orders to go to Vietnam in two weeks. And he invites me into his office and said, what do you think of that, Zaleski? Because I think the only way you're getting me over there is if you chain me to a helicopter, because I'm not going. He says, is that right? I said, that's right. And uh, we talked about his son, because his son was my age, and his son was going in the Merchant Marines. And he says, will that make a man? I says, if he's not one when he goes in, he won't be one when he gets out. And, you know, I didn't think too much of it. And I went home and I didn't tell my folks. And I had a quandary because I truly believe it's wrong to kill. You know, there might be a time when it's justified, but at that age, I could not see it. So I didn't tell my folks because I heard him enough. And I got down on my knees and I prayed and I said, God, help me, because I don't think I have the courage not to shoot another man. I'm afraid and I want to live. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to prison for five years or face a firing squad because I believe it's wrong. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's where I was at that age, you know. So I go and I'm supposed to go over with five others. We go to, to you know, to ship out and the first five go. And when it comes my turn, I say, I'm not going. They said, don't worry, you coward. Your orders have been changed. I'm like, 
Thank you, God. And I don't give it another thought. I don't think about them. You know, you know, at that age, the only thing I'm thinking about is, you know, getting laid and staying at it, you know, not getting caught for anything stupid, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, so a month before I get out, I meet one of the five and he's limping. And I said, what happened? He says, we all got shot and two were dead. And then all of a sudden I'm flooded with all these emotions, guilt and shame and anger and, you know, doubt. And I'm like, oh, did I do the right thing? Was I a coward to stand up for my convictions? Could I have saved them? Could I have done something, you know? So all of this stuff flooded me once. And I mean, I could feel myself dying inside, you know? And, and then it just turned to rage because I was anger. My anger was at myself. But, you know, at that age, you know, you know, I was in denial. So I'm angry at everybody but myself, you know. So uh, before I get out, I decide, you know what? I didn't want them to have died and suffered. They fought for my freedom. I can do what I want. I'm not wearing shoes. So I stopped wearing shoes. But the problem with that was people would say to me, hey, how come you don't wear shoes? I'd say, hey, I don't feel like it. you got a problem with that. So I fought with everybody. I got an empty sidewalk at home. Nobody bothered me. They left me alone. I didn't get invited out much because who wants a lunatic in your house? You know, and I was drinking at that time. And, you know, that movie that Clint Eastwood made, The Unforgiven. Mm -hmm. That's me yeah. when I drink. You know, I'm just wow. I'm just a, just a nasty guy. So, um, you know, so that happened, that went on for 33 years, 9-11 happened. And then all this stuff started coming up. And what happened was I'm in my pool, my, you know, I had a scuba shop and a health club in Hamptons. My favorite job was teaching little kids to swim and doing what I call teaching my mermaids to have an aqua aerobically because the old people you could be politically incorrect with, you they know, didn't they, care. They, yeah. my mother, they didn't care, you know that age, if you're starting to care about something, you know, I don't, you're different. I'll tell you that. And then the little kids, you can say anything to them and they'll say anything to you. So those were my two favorite groups because it didn't matter what you said. And they were honest. You know, I don't like these people trying to be politically incorrect, but then they lie to you about how they feel, you know? So uh, this five-year-old kid says to me, he says, Hey, how come you don't wear shoes? It was like God said to me, what are you doing? That was the first person I told in 33 years. The exact reason why you did it. Yep. I says, uh, I did it as a moral for my friends that died when I was in the Marines. And when I said that to this person, I realized that I'm the problem. Uh, because I have sat on my hands and done nothing. I have allowed this to go on which is unacceptable to me. So uh, I thought, what, what can I do? You know, I'm not politically connected. I'm not a good speaker. I don't know politicians. You know, what can I do to make a difference? But, so I decided, well, I can, I can walk the Appalachian Trail barefoot because I had walked there at one point for a little while to get my head together. And I knew people out there had their act together and they, you know, they networked a lot. So I figured, well, let me go there. And I wrote a letter that I, you know, asked everybody to send their politician, you know, to, to create awareness of post-traumatic stress. And then, uh, you know, I walked the Appalachian Trail barefoot. And I did it partially because, you know, everybody says, oh, you can't do it barefoot. And I started to get concerned because I'm like, well, if I don't do it barefoot, what am I going to tell people why I never wore shoes for 33 years? So I kind of painted myself into a box and I figured what better way to get attention because nobody that I know has done it barefoot. They say yeah. some guy from Africa did it 30 or 40 years before. So that would be the only other guy because other people that said they've done it, you know, they wore shoes for part of it. I did the whole thing. Barefoot. The whole thing. The I whole just, thing. can I, let me jump in for a second. I, I'm, this is such a unique story. Like I've never heard a story like this one before. 33 years later, when you make the decision to do the trail, right? All this stuff happens. You tell that young kid why you're doing it. I mean, how much do your thoughts flood back to 1972 and when it all started? I mean, how, how often were you thinking about that? The genesis of your journey? I, 
I tried to block it out of my mind. I tried to block it out of my mind till that time. I didn't think about it. I didn't tell people I was in. I just let it go. And, you know, I was an angry Vietnam vet. Hmm. So we're not talking about it. I'm not bringing it up. I'm denying it, you know, not facing it and thinking, oh, I've dealt with it. You know, I used to think I was happy when I wasn't angry. You know, there was different levels of joy, but they all had to do something with the, what level of anger I was at. And if I wasn't really angry, I was happy. But I realized that I had just been in so much denial and never really faced the issue and never dealt with it. And uh, so, you know, after I told that kid and did the first walk, you know, which I said, it, you know, I always think I know what I'm doing because arrogance i was never short on arrogance i'll tell you that okay so i figured well i'm going to create awareness and you know they're going to write to congress and get this all done right well my walk was my penance to forgive myself for sitting on my hands for 33 years because you know believing that you've done something wrong and being catholic with the judgment you know that came pretty easy to me so I was brutal on myself. Oh, yeah. I, I punished myself for over 33 years. Oh, yeah. So when I did this walk, <clears throat> you know, whether I had to do a penance or not, I had to do it for me. I had to forgive myself. So I had to do this walk. And, you know, my father said to me when, because my father and I had a wedge between us. When I went, when I came home from the Marines, he said he was proud of me. And I said, I'm ashamed. They call me baby killer. I wished I was never in, you know, because of how we got treated. And my father shut up, turned his back and walked away. Mm. So we had a wedge between us for 33 years. He asked me because I saw him before I went and walked the Appalachian Trail. He says, what the hell are you punishing yourself for? When I told him why I was doing the walk to create awareness it was the second time in my life I heard my father cry. And I didn't know he was crying because it was just a weird sound, you know, he was yeah. awful. And then he told me what he had been carrying for 60 years. He was in World War II. He was in the last five months of the war, scared to death every day. And he got, you know, the war ended and he got to see, because Eisenhower opened us Auschwitz. He goes to Auschwitz. They're scraping our relatives off the floor in those ovens. You, if you don't think that messes up a 17-year-old kid, you better think again. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think <clears throat> what's going on overseas now isn't messing these kids up, you better think again. So uh, I already I get sidetracked once. No, again. you know what? You know what? You know what is was jumping out for me, Ron. And I'm just, again, I'll kind of go back to the beginning. I'm grateful for your willingness to share it and to dig into the story. It is, it's incredibly unique, but what I think is, is got a bonding piece in there for a lot of people is, and something we've been talking about a lot here is you don't know what someone's carrying around with them on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, uh, and we talked about this quite a bit when I was talking to Worth and the guys related to the recent Afghan evac. And I and I and I liken it to this sense. There are Afghan refugees who have sprinted out of their country as fast as they can to get away from the Taliban. Mm -hmm. They've waded through sewage water to come to this country, our country, to be free from that evil reign. And imagine you get stuck behind somebody at the grocery store who doesn't look like you and doesn't sound like you, who's having a hard time communicating and they're slowing up your ability to purchase your stuff and you fly off the handle at them. You don't know what they're carrying around. And to this point, you carried that weight for 33 years. Uh, and I think in that is trying to find ways for all of us to extend some grace. Well, what's neat about it, too, when my father shared that with me, that he'd been carrying it for 60 years, he, he looked at me the way he had when I got home hmm. from, from the Marines. And then he said, I will do anything I can to help you. 
So, you know, all of that, you know, that whole way, that, that all disappeared in minutes, that what he held against me for 33 years. So, you know, and that's all most people need, you know, because if you don't understand where somebody's coming from, you know, you make up all this stuff in your head. Yeah. You get a whole narrative Ooh. built up. Yeah, but when you make that connection and that transparency happens and you see from their point of view, it changes everything. And there's an African saying that an enemy is just somebody whose story I haven't heard yet. Mm. You know, so it's um, it was pretty awesome. You know, I mean, my father and I, we got along a lot better. You know, I mean, it was it was rough growing up, but I also now that I'm older and you look back, I understand why he did it because the world he saw was horrible. And he prepared me for the world he saw the best way he knew how. And he was a mess. He was there for us every day. You know, he had all his own demons. He was fighting all the time, but he was there and did the best he could with what he had, you know? And I know later in his life, he regretted a lot of stuff he did. But in that moment, you know, here's a young, here's a young guy, you know, when you're a kid, that 30 year old guy is an old man and knows everything, you know, and he, he doesn't, you know, when you, when you grow up and you see, oh my God, you know, I, when I had my first son, I was scared to death holding this infant in my hands. I had no clue what to do, you know, and everything we do has an impact on that child. I mean, I try to get people to realize that, you know, they think, oh, you know, the, the veterans in the military, they're only 7% or less of the population. You know, they're expendable. Well, you know what? We impact the entire country because our families are in the impact zone. We had a homeless shelter in the Keys. 80% of the people that came through our shelter were children of veterans because they're destroyed before they get out of the gate. Mm. So... That's why, you know, I do what I do, because I don't think any kid should live that way. And we're destroying our own country from the inside out. I don't care how many whales you save or trees you try to save. If you don't fix people, we're going to, you know, I would have chopped down a tree to hear it fall. I would love to hear a redwood fall. That, that's got to be awesome. But, you know, now that I'm a little like, you know, more mindful of other people and, and my environment, you know, I don't do those things. But when you're angry and you don't care about you, you think you're going to care about a whale or a tree or mm. a piece of plastic? No, you don't care. And so let's so, go back to 2006, right? And this 2000, I think it ends up being over 2000 mile journey uh, on this first, right. on your first go round. Cause then you up the stakes in 2010, but on that first time, right? Mm -hmm. Appalachian trail, shoeless, this long journey. What, what do you learn throughout that initial process, that initial journey? Okay, well, there I was minding my own business. I made all my gear out of Tyvek house wrap. So my backpack was made out of paper. My sleeping bag and my rain gear was made out of paper and my tent, everything. Because I wanted to be like self-sufficient, not blame anybody for anything. I'm, I'm in charge, right? Okay, okay. And, uh, you know, and I think I know what I'm doing and I'm handing out letters and, you know, I'm meeting a lot of vets, like uh, over 30% of the people on the trail are veterans because they're trying to find their way home because you have the answer to your questions. You know, I used to ask people the answer to my questions so I could blame them if it went wrong. But, you know, when I took responsibility and went out there and started doing that, so I, it was... It was tough on me somewhat, and it was tough physically, walking barefoot, you know, up and down mountains all day long. And, you know, I was, I had one change of clothes, and what my sleeping bag was a layer of felt and Tyvek house wrap. And I slept in snow and all of that stuff with, that was it for me. That's what, that was my sleeping bag. You know, these people have these 30 below down covered sleeping bags. And it's like, I tried to make everything as light as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. But I made a mistake when I made my gear. I had it all on my shoulders so that it helped compress my spine because I had no cushion. So after, um, you know, like about seven months on the trail, I damaged my back. So my legs went numb. So I had to get off for five months till my legs, till my spine healed so I could walk again. And, uh, 
you know, like I said, physically it was hard. Emotionally it wasn't that hard because, you know, I'm meeting veterans and we're, you know, swapping stories and making fun of one another. It's my favorite thing to do, you know? And, uh, but physically, you know, one of the hardest parts for me was walking the, the Avery mountains. So it was like somebody took a sledgehammer, broke concrete and then etched it with acid. Mm. So it took me, I went a half a mile an hour that day because if I didn't place my foot right, I tore it because I just let, I just let my foot drag one time and it just touched the rock and tore the skin off the top of my toe. So I had to go slow and, you know, watch where I'm walking and plant my foot. And that was in Maine. And people are telling me, you know, when they see me, they say, oh, did you go through Pennsylvania again? I said, no, oh, wait till you get to Pennsylvania. Because they go through two sets of shoes walking on and through Pennsylvania. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if it was worse than Avery Mountain, I don't know how I'm going to make it, you know. When I get to Pennsylvania, it was like, you got to be kidding me. What are they what are they complaining about? You know, I guess they never made it through up through Maine yet, you know. But that was uh, and that and, uh, you know, I slept in the snow, I walked in the snow and you get acclimated to it. Since I've been not wearing shoes for over 30 years, you know, my feet, I already had a sole. Mm -hmm. I already had a cushion, so it wasn't that big a deal. But I mean, you know, once I had a piece of sawgrass cut through my toe. And now I know why they called it sawgrass. And then I wrapped it with toilet paper and, and pack it with dirt. That was my go-to. I pack any cut with dirt. So I figured, well, there's microbes in it. That's going to help heal it. You know, that's was what I believe. So it worked, you know. <laughs> Don't tell me that it won't. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I got it. This will be fine. Yeah, this will be fine. You know, so, like, all right. So that, I mean, it's, look, it's a long journey, right? And you talked about even having to take time off of it. When you get to the end, I'm not trying to fast forward through yeah, all the details. When you get to the end of that first one, right? In, tw- in 2006, and I mean, did it spill into 07? By yeah. the time you were done, 2006 right? and 2007. So when you were done with that, what, what's the feeling like? And and then does that set up for forming a foundation around it? Right? How, how does it all well, kind of get you know organized I, for you? Yeah, I formed the foundation before I left because I was trying to get awareness out there. Yeah. So I met with the guy I had met at the gym, and he helped me formulate the plan. And we had three points. Yeah. You know, to get mandatory counseling for military personnel prior to discharge, have support groups for them, you know, and, um, you know, so that's what I was doing. But I realized after that walk, at the end of the walk, it was kind of surreal. Because, you know, like when you're when you're a kid and you have your first birthday and you think, oh, I'm going to be five. I wonder what that feels like. Right. It doesn't feel like anything. Well, that's what it was like when I finished the trail. Oh, I'm five again. You know, do you have like a group or anybody waiting for you at the end? Um, my son came and met me. And then, uh, what we did is I, I had a big learning curve about doing events. We did a, an event at the end. We had Max Cleland come to the event. He's a triple amputee. And we had a father who lost a son to suicide. We had them come to the event, but the event was poorly attended because we rented a hall and rented it for the whole day and had all these tickets made. We had like six people show up because I didn't know about promoting. And you know, when you're, when you're jazzed about something, you think everybody else is as excited as, as you are. Well, I keep forgetting that, you know, I think since I'm excited and to me, it's really important, you know, people are, that's my kid. That's in the military. This is my country, you know? So I, look at it that way. People look at it that that's somebody else's kid and it, you know, it's fine. Long as I get my ice cream and I got gas in my car, who cares? Well, I don't see it that way. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. cause I know the cost. Between 2007 and 2010, you get to work some more and then you decide, all right, we're going to do this again, but this time we're going to go across the country. So yeah. take me to 2010 and this journey to basically go from Massachusetts to California for this effort. Okay, well, what happened was um, when I when I finished walking the trail, it didn't seem like much got done. I went to Washington and all that, and they just blew a lot of smoke up my shorts. And, you know, 
patted my back and then that was it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, doesn't work for me. I'm a Marine and I get a little motivated when I have a, a goal, I'm going for it and you got to shoot me to stop me. That's pretty much how it works. So, so I, I go and take care of my folks and I make a sign and I walk every day with this sign that says 18 vets a day commit suicide. And then I had the name of our not-for-profit so they can help out. And I walk with this, you know, every day. Well, I walk with it five days a week, creating awareness and getting people on board. And then, uh, and then I figured I wasn't happy with the results. So, uh, my father had died. So I figured, well, I'm going to go walk across the country now because I took care of him, you know, in that meantime from 2007 to 2010. So he died. So I decided, you know what? Um, now I have a plan. Not only am I creating awareness, but now I have a plan and I'm going to get it instituted and then they're going to act on it. That's my arrogant, you know, naive thinking at work there. So, uh, so I uh, meet this girl that's down there and she said she would drive the camper for me. So I'm thinking, great, I don't have to sleep on the ground every night and I'm gonna have a nice warm bed to stay. Well, she had some emotional issues, which I was not really aware of. You know, you, you think you know somebody, but if you're not with them 24 seven, like in a little camper, Mm -hmm. you know, that stuff really comes up. Yeah, proximity, will, proximity will get that to bubble up. <laughs> so even if they're sane, right? Right. It comes up. So uh, yeah, so so she went with me, and then she would, you know, drop me off in the morning and pick me up at night, and um, I would just walk with this sign. And I'm thinking, you know, I would get people to sign this petition that I wrote because I had this petition that I was bringing to Washington to demand, because I figured it'd be like mad, mothers against drunk drivers. I'm going to go tell them what to do. I'm going to be this big hero. They're going to do it. Like nobody else ever thought of what I'm thinking, you know, like, oh, I'm brilliant, you know? So uh, another humility lesson there. So, uh, you know, so we start out and then, you know, the first couple of days, I'm not sure if it was the first day I walked but a car pulls over to the side of the road. This woman gets out and stands there like she was shot in the ground. And she says, I read your sign. She says, I pray every day that my son comes home. He was scared when he, when he came home and I was afraid for him. And now he came home and I don't know my own son. And I'm afraid that he's not coming back. And then every day, and I was numb, you know, and she held me like I was her son. Every day after that, at least one parent would hold me like I was the child that committed suicide and say, he told me, I didn't believe him, I should have known it's my fault. They didn't blame the country, they didn't blame the people, they didn't blame the politicians, they all blamed themselves. I cried every day for 10 and a half months while they would hold me and cry like I was that son. It was brutal. I would do 10 Appalachian trails if I could avoid that. I'm telling you, it was to look in the eyes of a parent that lost their child and see mm. the despair. It was, it was brutal. So that's what happened every day. And I got people to sign this petition and I get, you know, all the way to the end. And I went through a heat wave. I went through a blizzard. And uh, one of the, in the first week, while I'm walking, I go through this slum and I stepped on a headlight of a glass, a broken headlight of a glass, and it went through my foot. And of course, I packed it with dirt, you know, wrapped it with tape. I had some extra tape and uh, to keep from the dirt from falling out. <laughs> and then, and it helped stop it bleeding. And I also got out, thrown out of a government building. And I've had this little pity party going, oh, who cares? You know, does it matter? Am I doing anything? I must be out of my mind. And I call my brother up. I say, Mike, I question my sanity. He says, don't worry, we question it too. So I'm like, great, that was, that was a lot of help. And I, I'm walking through this neighborhood and this, it's a bad neighborhood. And all the yards are just dirt with trash in it. This one yard though has a plot of grass that's a foot and a half wide 
and maybe four to six feet long, watered, fertilized because you could see the little bits of fertilizer weeded because there was not a weed in it. And it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like AstroTurf. It wasn't like, you know, the mat of grass you buy. Mm -hmm. And the guy cut it with a lawnmower. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy thinking? He, he must be out of his mind. And then I thought about it. You know, he didn't care what anybody in the neighborhood said about his plot of grass. That's his yard. That's what he wanted to do. And it made a difference to him. And I thought, you know what? If that guy can do that, I can do this walk. Because I had the wrong motivation when I started the walk that I'm doing this for you. And, you know, I'm this hero. And, you know, um, and then I had expectations. Well, you know, all these people are going to rally behind me and I'm going to do this. At that moment, I realized I am doing this walk for me because I care and matters to me and I can do something and I'm doing it. Yeah. <clears throat> that made it easier. And then I also didn't look at it because in the beginning I thought after walking a couple of days, I'm thinking I'm going to walk over 3000 miles. I can't do this. I got to be out of my mind. What I did was I decided, you know what, I'm going to walk today and I'll see how I feel tomorrow. When I did it that way, I was able to do it. And with my attitude that I'm doing this for me, it was easier, much easier to do because then, yeah, it was just way easier to do that way with that attitude. Yeah. Do, do you, I, I get the sense that throughout this journey, you know, do you start to feel like you're being brought into these people's lives for purpose, right? So if those people are stopping on the side of the road, grabbing you, talking to you, hugging you as if you were their child, you're serving a purpose for them in that moment. You're giving, it feels to me like you're giving them some level of peace. They're not going to get their loved one back, right? They're still going to have to deal with that loss and that burden, but some level of comfort that only people can provide for each other. Yeah. I mean, I really felt that I was helping share their burden hmm. so that they knew they weren't alone. They were heard and it wasn't their fault, you know, that, <clears throat> I, I think they looked for me to forgive them, but it was me asking them to forgive me. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big thing too. You know, I, uh, you know, I think I always know what I'm doing. I'm basically clueless. God, you know, you talk about being, bringing people into your life. If, you know, God was always with me. I wasn't always with him on that walk, mm. you know? I mean, I was arrogant to 300 miles from the end thinking, I did this. I'm great. I'm fantastic. No, he, he let me know that he was with me. You you've know? got Ron, you've got an incredible ability to talk about these experiences you've lived, ones that you felt guilt for moments you felt pride in and, and have real perspective over it. Um, it I, I'm, I'm a bit in awe, to be honest with you in hearing you speak about it and the perspective you have and, and being able to sort of remove yourself out of the moment and look at it and say, yeah, I was feeling this way. I shouldn't have been, I was acting this way, right. With arrogance or whatever. That's, that's incredible. Um, how do you do that? Well, how I did that was writing that book. It took me 14 years to write the book. And it's because every time I relived each one of those stories and my experience, every time I rewrote it. So like, you know, they say journal is good. Well, trust me, you want to, you really want to do journaling on steroids, write a book. And I, and I wasn't too concerned if the book ever got out there. I just wanted my two sons to know who their father was and why I was such a lunatic. And then I also hope that if anybody read it might help them to get a different perspective, because, you know, if I look at the same, if I look at the world with the same, you know, format that I use to look at every problem, it's never going to change. But when I start to look at it a different way, I'm like, oh, then I, it's easier to make the shift. So that's what's neat about that. So I looked at it because in the beginning, when I started to write the book, it was pretty judgmental. Well, you should do this and you mm -hmm. should do that. You know what? I wrote it. This is what happened to me. And this is how I saw it. Because I realized 
I have no idea what you've gone through and how you see the world. I know how I see the world. And maybe when you read the book, you might say, you know what? I can see that or I understand that because I've been there. But I, for me to assume that I know what you've been through and how you feel, that's arrogance. So thank God, you know, God humbled me before I got off of that walk. Yeah, no kidding. All right. So that was 2010. You go all the way across the country. Now it's 2022. So tell me about the organization, what you've been up to. Are you still not wearing shoes? How the heck are your feet? Like what's going on these days? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when we, when I got finished with that walk, we opened up a shelter in the Keys because I realized that I, I went to the, I went to Washington after that walk and with the petition, like I'm, you know, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington with a sledgehammer, right? You got to do that. You know what? I might as well have talked to the concrete wall. Mm. And then I realized, and I cried, you know, because, you know, here I'm passionate about this. I'm going to these guys and I want them to do this. And I'm telling them what to do. I realize you don't tell people what to do to get them to help. You ask them for help, but you got to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I realized, you know what? I got to do it and then go to ask them for help. I don't go tell them what to do because you know what? If your car's in a ditch and you're sitting there on the side of the road, perfectly healthy and say, hey, move my car out of the ditch. I'm going to say, what do you go do it yourself? But if you're pushing that car, I'll get in there and help you. Mm, Good metaphor. Yeah. So I realized that. So I opened up a shelter, you know, for homeless veterans. And like I told you earlier, 80% of the people that came through my doors were children of veterans. They were broken before they got out of the house. So uh, that's why, you know, I work so hard. We have a mentorship program that we started. And the mentorship program helps you shift your perception and how that kind of came about. When I had the shelter in the Keys, I judged everybody that came in my door. Well, you're a bum, you got to get a job. You're an alcoholic, you got to go with it. You're a drug addict, you got to go to NA. And everybody, I made everybody defend themselves because I judged them. I didn't give them an opportunity to like, you know, oh yeah, I want to change. No, I made them defend what they did. And I realized that when when I started accepting them who they were and say, look, you know what? This is what I can do for you. Mm -hmm. But this is what I want from you if you want this from me. And if you can't do that, you don't need my help sleeping in your own puke. You're doing a great job. And how I learned that is I had uh, an outdoor shower that I built at the shelter, right? And it was for everybody to use because, you know, down there it's hot and they could, Mm -hmm. you know, at least wash and smell good and maybe get a job or whatever. Right. So, and I was taking care of my mother after this, when I came back from this walk, I took care of my mother next. So I lived a thousand feet away. So, you know, I left at night and I came back in the morning and in the morning I came and I got nine guys living at my shelter. None of them are working. None of them are doing it. You know, I'm letting them watch TV and I got all sorts of food for them. They're doing whatever they want. And I come in and the guy says, oh, one of your friends came by last night and used the shower. I said, oh, really? Who was it? He said, no, I don't know. Oh, and by the way, he's shitting it. I says, well, did anybody clean it? No, no. Oh, oh, no, they're gone. And I can't because, you know, I have this disease, mm-hmm. you know. So everybody had an excuse. I cleaned the shower. I'm livid. I can't wait to find this guy and put his face in it. Yeah. So two days later, the same thing happens. Now I'm like, nobody could clean it again but me. So I clean it again. And this time I'm screaming because I have these little conversations with God, you know. I'm like, God, what are you trying to tell me here? And then I got, Ron, that guy was you. You would have broke the shower to show you that nobody could help you. Then I got it. So that's when I stopped judging people because I judge this guy. You know what? I don't know what your path is. I had to be angry for 33 years and be miserable for 30 years to change. I wasn't about to change that guy till he was ready to change. I could just be there for him and, hey, you know, treat him like a human being. But if you want this from me, if you want some shelter and some food, this is what I expect of you. If you can't do that, fine. You're, you're on your own. You're doing a great job. And uh, so that's how I learned that, you know, and I, I always look at things, you know, if something happens, I get a feeling I'm like, 
why am I getting this feeling? Why is this scene coming up for me? Like I'd have a lot of flashbacks yeah. in my childhood. Why am I, you know, why is that going on? And, you know, at this point right now, we have a mentorship program that's helping hundreds of people. And we're reaching millions of people and we have over 50,000 followers. And this mentorship program is awesome because it helps you shift your perception. And they are simple challenges because, you know, when you're a young kid, you know, you think you're perfect and nothing's wrong with you and you're invincible and all this. So you don't do any reflecting or anything. Our first challenge is, what are you grateful for when you wake up? What are you grateful you accomplished at the end of the day? Now, that may seem like nothing, but if you believe you're a monster and you're drinking a fifth a day and you're just living in hell, that's a tough question to answer. We had a guy that had a gun in his mouth, believed he was a monster, took him two days to answer that question. But when he answered it and he found something to live for, it turned his life around. Your entire story to me comes down, I think, to one word. And I think it's humility. I think it's being able to, regardless of, of what you carry, what you've done, mistakes you've made, we've all made mistakes. We're all broken, right? We're all looking for ultimate redemption, but you've got to humble your, you've got to humble yourself in the sense that you make that connection that you're not the center of the universe and somebody else is in control of it. Right. And you've referenced God multiple times and I feel the same way. Yeah. Humility, right? Being able to find humility in this in your 33 year journey, right? From that time in the early 70s to where you've come today, I, I keep coming back to humility and I keep coming back to humble yourself before the Lord. Yeah. That's what I'm feeling right now and talking to you. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, like the story where I got the humility, you know, like I, I have these conversations with God all, you know, when you're walking by yourself and you're, you got a lot of, you got a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah. You're putting eight to 16 hours on the road. You know, you get a lot of time to like, you know, yell at God or whatever you want to do, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm 300 miles from the end of this walk. I'll, I'll never forget it. And I'm like 19 miles from the closest town. I'm on a road that's straight as an arrow next to a railroad track. Because back, that's how they built roads back then, just mm-hmm. straight. And I can, I'm in the center of a dirt circle. I can see to the horizon in a complete circle around me. There's nothing higher than me out there, you know. And I'm walking down the road. And I'm like uh, having this conversation about how awesome I am, you know, blowing smoke up my shorts for a big boy. I am awesome. I'm the only guy to walk across barefoot that I know of, that anybody knows of. And I'm doing this great mission. I'm going to Washington to tell them what to do. And I mean, it went on and on for an hour. You know, I mean, I was laying into it big time, you know. So uh, and then this car pulls up alongside of me and it's, you know, not a new car. And it's got a little dent in it and a woman in it's a little overweight and, you know, her clothes are nice, but, you know, they're not new or shiny. And she's a little overweight and missing a tooth. And she says, you know what? I heard about you on the radio. I came out here to see somebody who cares. And we talked and she says, you know, my brother was in, my father was in the military. And she says, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to get you the best lunch you ever had. And I'm thinking, well, that just shows how awesome I am. You know, this woman goes 19 miles one way to see me because that's the closest town. She's going to go 19 back and then maybe over 20 back to get me the sandwich and over 20 back. I am awesome. And, And then I'm thinking, you know, and she turns around and head back and I'm thinking, you know, I hope she doesn't think I'm a vegan because I could sure go for a roast beef here. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I keep walking and I'm still blowing smoke up my shorts. She pulls up, hands out this little white bag like you get out of a drugstore. And she says, God bless you, the road you're on and your petition." She and I say, thank you. And she pulls a little in front of me and turns right in front of me. I'm looking at her. And as her taillights going out of the the corner of my eye and I open the bag and there's a bottle of Coke in there, a bottle of water, a package of orange crackers and a Mars bar. 
and I say, God, this is the best lunch I ever had. I turn around. There's nobody in the desert but me. I'm alone in the desert. And then I say, God, forgive me. I expected my angel to have wings. <clears throat> and then I realized if he wasn't with me every step of the way, I would have never made it. Because there were times I got shot at. There were times that people hit my sign while I'm wearing it, while I'm walking on the side of the road. If he wasn't with me, I would have never made it. So that was, uh, that was the biggest humility lesson I had right there. And I, I finally got it. Now, he had yeah. given me several others, but I never got the memo till that day. Ron, that is amazing. I think on that note, we'll end our conversation because it's just a, it's a powerful story. I, I, I'm sitting here listening. I can, I can almost picture all that happening. I'm, I'm envisioning you out in that space and in that moment. It's incredibly powerful, uh, the way that our lives are shaped and, and the, uh, the path we end on, the journey that we end on. We wish you nothing but the best in your continued efforts. The name is The Long Walk Home. You guys can find Ron's organization. We'll leave some notes in the show uh, notes as well, where you can find their website and all that. And Ron, I'm just grateful for you coming on and sharing your incredible, unique story uh, as you continue you. to go out there and do the work that you're doing. Yeah, and I hope you... Uh you know, take, I hope you buy the book out there because it helped one woman that I know of. She said, you know, I used to hate my father and uh, he, you know, he abused us and he abandoned us and I never understood him. He had been in the military, but not in combat. Hmm. When I read your book, I understand him. Thank you. So hmm. that made it worthwhile. My son still haven't read it. I had to buy the book for him. They wouldn't even buy it, you know. In time, in due time, my friend, I'm sure. Yeah. But I would really like you to take a look at the website and get involved in our mentorship program because it's each up to each one of us. You don't have to be a veteran to be a mentor. I have a 97-year-old mentor, and she's not a veteran. Her husband wow. was, and she helps these young people out. So you're never too old. You never have too much time because you can mentor one person and do an hour or so a week to help somebody out, you know? Incredible. Yep, we'll do. We'll share with everyone as well. Thanks, man, for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. It was awesome. He's Ron Zaleski. I'm Brian Jodis, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.